daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Premier Li Qiang warns of deepening trust deficit at the opening ceremony of the World Economic Forum annual meeting 2024 in Davos. Iran launched ballistic missiles at targets in Syria and in Iraq's Kurdistan region. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's bid back into the White House started with an easy win in Iowa. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has warned of deepening trust deficit, saying the lack of trust is exacerbating the risks to global economic growth and peaceful development. He made the remarks Tuesday at the opening ceremony of the World Economic Forum annual meeting 2024 in Davos, Switzerland. Li Qiang stressed that under the impact of global crises, if countries fragmentally fight their own battles, the world economy will become more fragile. He said, "Only by fully respecting the objective laws of the International Industrial Division of Labor and continuously improving the stability of the global industrial chains and supply chains can the common interests of all parties be truly met." He added that China will always adhere to the fundamental national policy of opening up and will only open its door wider and wider to the outside world. Now, for more on China's message and China's participation in the global economy, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier spoke with Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. So, Professor Liu, thank you for joining us. China and Switzerland signed a joint declaration Monday to bolster the free trade agreements, the first signed back in 2013, and to deepen the bilateral ties between the two countries. So, China is agreeing to provide visa-free entry for Swiss citizens. So, how do you see the trade relations between the two countries, and how will the visa-free entry for Swiss citizens benefit the business and trade going forward? Well. Switzerland is a small country, but it's been a pioneer to trade with China, and uh, uh, the investment has been quite on the surge since the negotiation for the free trade agreement between China and Switzerland in 2007. Trade has been really on a very rapid surge、uh, because the free trade agreement does not only warrant the、uh, a large Part of the free market entry on both sides. It also reduces the uh, tariff. Uh, some of them for、uh, zero, and some of them can really be extended.、Uh, the phased type of、uh, reduction on the tariff really provides benefits for、uh, the traders on both sides. For example, China uh, exports uh, for the Switzerland market enjoyed. A large saving cost、uh, for the electronic products, for the intermediaries to make watches, etc. The、uh, Switzerland has also in,、uh, enjoyed、uh, trade facilitation procedures in terms of the quality inspection, customs clearance, and、uh, also enhanced the intellectual property protection, which is、uh, very much of the concern of the Switzerland,、uh, the innovators and marketers. So it is really above. The most favored nation treatment that is offered by the multilateral tr-、uh, treaties like WTO. Therefore, with all the free flow of the goods and also the facilitation of investment, we have seen a quite healthy growth for the economic、uh, interaction between China and Switzerland.、Mm. And how will this new visa-free entry for Swiss citizens benefit the business and trade going forward? Uh, fundamentally, businesses are handled by people, and also the、uh, entry of the uh, people uh, in terms of facilitation does really warrant the、uh, better understanding and smoother communication. Because、uh, even though、uh, internet has developed to such a, a stage,、uh, the face-to-face、uh, interaction, handshake, are so utterly fundamental. For all businesses to close any transaction, 
based on the trust that is being built uh, by talking with, uh, with each other face to face, by visiting the plantations, by visiting the logistic centers, etc. This can really reduce uh, many of those uncertainties. Some of the uh, visitors are coming. Uh, that's not only for business, but also that's uh, the uh, impetus to promote people-to-people -people, uh, exchanges. And subtly, of course, is that it is really quite an implication for the entire EU uh, mm -hmm. as how they can really work uh, based on the best practices between China and Switzerland in terms of the uh, free trade agreement, visa-free uh, type of uh, arrangement, and how they can really better engage uh, with China. Mm. And Chinese Premier Li Qiang is in Switzerland to attend the World Economic Forum annual meeting. The theme of this year's Davos is rebuilding trust. So how do you explain it? What's the current situation of the global economy? As a long tail of the pandemic and people have uh, stopped uh, direct face-to-face -face communication uh, on a large scale, and also now with the geopolitical confrontation that is going very hard in uh, some of the regions and uh, the rising protectionism is still going on and the lack of uh, coordination in terms of financial policy uh, is also a disruptive factor. So right now it is important to really uh, for people to gather together to uh, build a better understanding and reshape the trust. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, the trust, because trust is the basis for any type of collaboration and also elimination of uh, any type of antagonism and uh, even hostility. And global institutions now have slightly different projections over the world economic uh, you know, outlook this year. So what do you think are the challenges and opportunities for developing economies? Well, uh, for developing economies, they uh, still uh, have a lot more potential to be unlocked by uh, free uh, flow of goods through the trade uh, integration, through the uh, opening for investment, and also by building a enabling a, a business environment for that uh, uh, investors can really be attracted to uh, constitute a strong force uh, to rebuild the, uh, their economy uh, from infrastructure to uh, manufactured goods and to high-end services, and particularly uh, when the uh, AI gap is being widened between the uh, high-income countries and low-income countries, the capacity building to really uh, receive the benefit of artificial intelligence is also very important, which is also a topic uh, at the uh, WEF or the World Economic Forum uh, that is being held in Davos. The uh, challenge uh, uh, in front of them is that uh, some of these countries face uh, high external debts and uh, uh, the governance needs to be uh, further enhanced for transparency and sustainability. And also the, uh, these countries needs really to strengthen the South-South Corporation and uh, Chinese Belt and Road offers uh, many of those best pr uh, practices in that regard. Mm -hmm. And people in Davos are expected to talk about how China can continue to steer the economic growth in the world. So how resilient is China's economy, do you think? Well, China has been uh, really a substantial contributor for uh, many decades to the world economic growth, uh, roughly by uh, on the average of uh, uh, 30% and even up to 34%. So uh, even with more of the domestic uh, economic downturn, we are still managing to achieve uh, around 5% growth rate, which is uh, really doubles and more than doubles actually the world average growth, and particularly compared with those uh, high-income countries. Uh, China uh, has a very strong industrial cluster, uh, has a uh, uh, very sophisticated logistic system uh, supported by our infrastructure support. And also the uh, Chinese uh, huge domestic market remains the uh, unrivaled attractions mm -hmm. to foreign investors. So therefore, uh, China will still be able to overcome some of the 
challenges we're currently facing uh, with regard to real estate, with regard to local government debts. We uh, can't really fight a uphill uh, battle to achieve uh, a reasonable level of stable growth. Mm-hmm. Professor Liu, we can't talk about the economic growth anything without talking about AI. Its role for the future is big, and everyone is talking about. With several nations now saying it perhaps is time to control the AI development growth. So, is that possible? Well,、uh, artificial intelligence is really the game changer, and that was referred to actually、uh, years ago by the Fourth Industrial Revolution, written by、uh, Klaus Schwab. The head of the World Economic Forum,、uh, it is really、uh, something that can、uh, sharpen the competitiveness of those who are in、uh, good mastery of the artificial intelligence.、Uh, however, the monopoly of、uh, several nations、uh, such an ambition is really vicious because uh, uh, the fourth industrialization under the globalized context needs to be. Further shared by a larger part of the entire human race, and、uh, monopoly does really、uh, give some of the competitive edge at the moment. But they will be able to destroy the soil for further economic growth of the world, and hence dwindle their own growth and the application of those uh, uh, high technologies that in the hands of the few. And what's the global efforts and challenges are now in climate change issue? What's China's achievement in decarbonization? Well,、uh, climate change becomes a very hot spot, and now、uh, there is very uneven development. Given the consensus,、uh, you know, over、uh, countries dress on green transformation because some of the countries rely on fossil energies uh, still uh, heavily, and some countries are doing far better. And uh, uh, the fact that、uh, the high-income countries failed to provide the sufficient fund、uh, commitment to those、uh, developing countries、uh, is also something that uh, the uh, these countries needs to reflect on. Because after all, we share one Mother Earth, and no one can really escape、uh, any type of damage uh, to the uh, Mother Earth. So therefore. The world need need really to work together to contribute their fair share and also their competitive advantage to work towards a, a cleaner environment and better living Earth. That was Liu Baocheng, director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. Coming up, Iran launched ballistic missiles at targets in Syria and northern Iraq. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the Independent Taihe Institute. World Today is news without the hype. And business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So, join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Iranian media said the Revolutionary Guards have attacked what they called Israel's spy headquarters in the Kurdistan region in Iraq. The Iranian force also says it struck against the Islamic State in Syria. The United States condemned the attacks after several explosions had occurred near its consulate in Erbil, Iraq. The U.S. State Department called the strikes reckless. Iran had vowed revenge for the killing of three members of the guards in Syria last month. For more on this, I earlier spoke with Saeed Mohammad Mirandi. He's professor at University of Tehran in Iran, also a media advisor to Iran's nuclear negotiation team. So, Professor, in three statements, the RRGC said the operations are responses to recent "quote-unquote" terrorist attacks in the southeastern Iranian provinces of Kerman. And Sistan, and also Baluchistan, as well as Israel's assassination of Iranian and resistance、uh, commanders. Professor, what are the evidences possessed by Iranian authorities? Iranian intelligence has、um, a strong presence across the region, especially after the 
uh, rise of ISIS. And uh, as you know, Iran was central in the fight against ISIS and al-Qaeda in both Syria and Iran. Iran's role was key. And uh, General Soleimani led the fight against both of these uh, terror groups that was supported by NATO and its allies. So Iran's information about what goes on in the areas in Syria still occupied by these terror groups is, is very good. And uh, the Turkestan group is uh, an international terrorist organization that has uh, terrorist uh, members from uh, Central Asia uh, and across Asia as well. In Iraq, uh, unfortunately, the northern, the northern part of Iraq is under U.S. influence, and the central government in Iraq does not have uh, adequate control. And uh, Mossad agents, as well as uh, terror groups uh, linked to the West, have a, have, have a strong presence there. And despite warnings by Iraq, by Iran, uh, the Iraqi government failed to do anything about it because they simply didn't have the power to do so. So Iran ultimately was forced to both punish ISIS and uh, the Mossad because of the different terror acts against Iranian uh, citizens. Now, Professor, do these strikes by Iran risk escalating tensions in the region, including those between Iran and Israel, also those between Iran and America, etc.? How do you evaluate the chances of that? I think really what it is doing is that it's sending a warning message to the United States that escalation is not in its interest. The United States uh, by supporting the genocide in Gaza, has ultimately caused the war to expand to the war to the borders in of Lebanon, to the Red Sea, and Iraq. The, the, the U.S. itself uh, carried out airstrikes in Syria and in Iraq, and of course in Yemen. So um, the Iranians are basically warning the Americans that. Uh, they should uh, rein the Israeli regime in. And otherwise, uh, this is not going to end well for the United States. So it is, this is more of a... Of a mm. uh, it's both an act of punishment against Israelis and ISIS who've been working to undermine Iranian security together because Israel and ISIS have had strong links during the Syrian dirty war. ISIS had bases alongside the uh, Israeli border and they were protected. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, in addition to this punishment, it also serves as a warning to the Americans that uh, they should be aware that the situation can get out of control, and therefore they must end the genocide, genocide and push for a ceasefire. The international community is watching what's happening both in the Red Sea as well as in Gaza. Now, Professor, what are Iran's stakes and core interests both in the Red Sea and in the Israel-Hamas conflict? Well, Iran wants an immediate ceasefire, and it has been saying so from very early on in the conflict. And in the Red Sea, the Americans have created this unnecessary and foolish escalation. And the Yemeni armed forces and Ansarullah, or the Houthis, as the West likes to call them, they were simply blockading Israeli ports and warning ships not to go there. Uh, the rest of the global shipping was untouched, but the Americans got involved and have escalated and have made the situation in the Red Sea more complicated. The Yemeni government said that they are only blockading Israeli ports because of the genocide, and they are doing so to stop the genocide. So if the Americans want peace in the Red Sea, they should stop the escalation, but more importantly, they should end the genocide in Gaza. It is up to them. Israel cannot, Israel is a weak, it is uh, completely dependent on the United States. And if the United States wants a ceasefire, there will be a ceasefire. Now, Professor, do you predict Iran will further engage in, in, in itself in these conflicts? Yeah, Iran does support the resistance. Iran does support um, the Palestinian people and Hezbollah and Yemen and Iraq. Iran supports them against U.S. imperial ambition. Uh, the United States has to recognize that the world has changed and the global south, they 
uh, have uh, the right to uh, be independent and to live based upon their own interests and values. And the United States has to treat the countries in the global south with, with respect. Iran will continue to support these groups and these peoples against these imperial ambitions. But at the same time, Iran wants the situation to de-escalate immediately for the sake of the Palestinian people, for the sake of the people of the region, and for the sake of the global economy. And everything is in the hands of the Americans. If the Americans want this to end, it will end today. It is up to them. Now, Professor, the Houthis in Yemen struck a U.S.-owned cargo ship on Monday. This comes after U.S. and U.K. conducted airstrikes in Yemen over the weekend. How do you evaluate the current situation in the Red Sea regarding safe passage of commercial and trade vessels? Well, the only reason why they struck an American ship was because the Americans carried out military action against Yemen, and they murdered Yemeni citizens. Otherwise, the Yemeni armed forces and Ansarullah said explicitly that they will have no problem with trade in the Red Sea. The only uh, issue for the Yemeni government is to impose a blockade on Israeli ports because of the genocide. But the Americans, by carrying out an act of war against the people of Yemen, have forced Yemen to punish Americans, to hit them back. So the Americans have brought this upon themselves. As you said repeatedly, uh, Professor, the United States uh, is arguably the most consequential player in the region. So what should it, in other words, it hasn't done to stop the war in Gaza? Well, the United States is, in, is declining and its importance is decreasing, uh, but it is still a very important force. The Israeli is completely dependent on U.S. weapons, U.S. financial support, and U.S. munitions and ammunition. If the United States tells the Israelis that the genocide must stop now, the Israelis will have no option but to stop. But the U.S. president does not want the war to stop. He has so far shown that he does not want a ceasefire, and he has so far shown an interest in escalating in the Red Sea, in Iraq, and Syria. Across the region, the resistance is pushing back uh, in order to uh, show the Americans that escalation is not good for the United States and it's not good for the world. Professor, one more question briefly. What do you think regional uh, important players like Iran and also um, Egypt can do to stop the war? I think it's the responsibility of all countries mm. in the region to support the Palestinian people and to push for an end to apartheid and uh, ethno-supremacist policies in this region, especially now that the West is on the decline and Israeli has shown that it is fundamentally weak. The, the pressure should uh, gradually... Uh, forced Americans to rethink their policies. So the more Iran and Egypt and other countries support the Palestinian people, the more uh, difficult it is for the Americans to continue this war, which they cannot win. That was Saeed Mohammed Mirandi, professor at University of Tehran in Iran, also a media advisor to Iran's nuclear negotiation team. Coming up, Donald Trump easily won the Iowa Republican caucuses, and China issues policies to develop the silver economy. You're listening to World Today. For more discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break. Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Donald Trump's bid to 
Return to the White House has got off to a good start, as the media projects the former president winning the Iowa Republican caucuses. Projections show that Trump has won over 50% of the votes, as people attended the coldest caucus ever. Temperatures were as low as minus 35 degrees Celsius on the night of the vote. Trump's victory reinforces his bond with Republican voters, even as he faces legal challenges that could complicate his presidential bid. The Republican forerunner has held the outcome, saying, "saying he wants to quote unquote straighten up the problems of the world." Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will reportedly secure second place ahead of former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. Now, for more, we are joined by Harvey Zodin. He is former vice president of ABC TV Network, also senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you, Harvey. Good to have you back on the show. Good to be here. Now, Harvey, the Trump won fi- around fifty-two percent of the vote. That's probably the biggest、uh, winning Iowa caucus.、Um, uh, And I think the the win by Bush in two thousand was slightly behind that. So, are you surprised it? And does the Des Moines win reflect、um, what's going to happen nationally? I'm saddened, but I'm not at all surprised.、Hmm. Look, it was an impressive, it was overwhelming win.、Uh, but to me, it has echoes of the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January sixth, twenty twenty one. And like Nazi sympathizers in Germany or here in Austria in the nineteen thirties, Trump's true believer followers sh- showed that they'll do anything, anything to win, including recently mounting an insurrection to overthrow the U.S. government, or now in Iowa to risk these perilous weather conditions、uh, to caucus, no matter what the personal danger is to those people. To me, there's a twofold problem with American democracy. Actually, democracy, as we know, it's fraying in the U.S. and in here in Europe and elsewhere. Our system—it's basically rigged against one person, one vote. It effectively discriminates against minorities, the weak, and the middle class. It favors the ruling elite with their army of lobbyists who pass legislation favorable to the 0.1 percent, who also flood the system with money, indirectly buying votes or at least skewing the results. And second, as in Nazi Germany in the 30s. Desperate people vote with their hearts and not with their heads. Our system is flawed, especially when you compare it with China's whole process democracy, where candidates are advanced by proven achievements in the public and private sectors. In China, a mentally challenged and unstable candidate like Trump couldn't even be chosen dog catcher in the smallest village.、Mm. Well,、um, the international community,、uh, especially、um, liberal media around the world, do have concerns about the prospect of Trump winning again. Now,、um, Harvey, do Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley still stand a chance in your observation?、Uh, well,、uh, like they say, it's not over till the fat lady sings. But、uh, theoretically, they do have a chance. But I think, in the absence of unforeseen events, and even if Trump is convicted in one or more of his state and federal trials, this may not matter. His true believer followers will even stiffen their resolve for their Messiah、uh, if he's convicted. But, and it's a potential big but, independent voters. Who are about ten to fifteen percent of the population, and who are the ones who really decide most election outcomes in our deeply polarized country?、Mm-hmm. Have indicated that Trump convictions could cause them to sit out the election or even to vote for Biden. Nobody, nobody can predict the outcome. It's really an eternity until November fifth election. But I would say that the New Hampshire primary next week will be the one to watch closely. Voters there are highly independent. They're highly unpredictable. We might just see a surprise win for Nikki Haley, and not so much for DeSantis, for whom I think New Hampshire is likely to mark the end of his、uh, campaign.、Mm. Now, Harvey, what issues are on American voters' mind for this election? I mean, is it still about the economy?、Harvey? Yeah, it's largely about the economy. 
even though Biden really has done an excellent job recovering the faltering economy away from Trump's lack of leadership during COVID, where he and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, lined the pockets of their fat cat supporters with no-bid contracts for faulty masks and other PPE. But many Americans generally believe that they're worse off now than four years ago. And even if the economy is much better overall, which it is, most of the dividends seem to have gone to the 0.1% and not to those who needed the economic bounce. And uh, they're the people who pay a disproportionate share of taxes. That's the working and middle class. But they've been largely left out of the uh, economic bounce. Um, I, I think, though, uh, that there are other reasons on the minds of American voters. I think that uh, another reason is that many Americans cannot accept that the world has changed and that we have a multipolar world that includes other countries sharing leadership because we in America have been raised on this concept of American exceptionalism, the belief that only America was chosen by God to lead the world. Mm -hmm. And I kid you not, but some Republicans even believe that Donald Trump was chosen by God to lead the world. It's so hard to believe that the system is that broken. Or well, Harvey, um, as you already said, uh, the race in New Hampshire is one probably worth watching. Other than that, moving forward, which races do you think uh, you know people should pay attention to? Well, um, I think there's also uh, another dimension here that we shouldn't forget about, and that's both House elections and Senate elections mm -hmm. in the various states. So all House members are up for uh, election or re-election, and um, many senators are uh, up for election as well. Because uh, the uh, vote tabby, tally in mm -hmm. both parties is so close, um, the outcome of those elections, which are very hard to predict at the moment, could well influence uh, the outcome of uh, American government and its uh, decision making. So I think they're not much talked about, but I think those elections are very, very important. And in some cases, as are more important than uh, the primaries, especially because it appears that Trump pretty much has it sewn up as a presidential nominee. Mm, indeed, the power sharing in the Congress is very important. Uh, one more question, Harvey. Will we end up, you know, again in a situation where Donald Trump is, um, is uh, you know, standing against uh, Joe Biden? Uh, yeah, I think it's very likely. Uh, I think that uh, it's Trump's uh, race to lose. I think Biden will be the, the nominee. I think a lot of Americans are unhappy with that choice. Uh, especially American young people who would like to see uh, a new generation of leaders take over, but the system is not uh, promoting that kind of choice. So, yeah, I think uh, mm -hmm. come November, uh, the choice is going to probably be between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's going to be a very interesting race because there's no guarantee that Trump's going to win. Uh, there's no uh, guarantee that Biden is going to lose. It's because it's such a long time between now and November. And so much can happen that is not foreseeable even uh, mm -hmm. until that time. It's going to be an interesting year, though. It's going to be important for the U.S. It's going to be important for China. It's going to be important for the world. Mm. Well said. It's going to be an exciting time for politics in America. Thank you. That was Harvey Zodin, former uh, vice president of ABC TV Network, also senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one -on -one interviews. And you need the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing.
The Pacific island nation of Nauru has announced its decision to sever ties with Taiwan and commit to the One China principle. Nauru says it will recognize Taiwan as an inalienable part of the Chinese territory and no longer develop any official relations or exchanges with the region. Nauru has a land area of 21 square kilometers and a population of around 13,000. It lies about 3,000 kilometers north of Australia. Greg Navarro visited the island nation. The island of Nauru is so small that driving around the entire country will take you about 40 minutes. A trip filled with picturesque views of the Pacific Ocean and welcoming people. Nancy Benjamin Tamaki and her daughters have been making and selling one of the country's most popular dishes here for about a year to supplement the family's income. Coconut fish is everyone's favorite. It's like a signature food in our country because it's all local fish. From our island. There is one major supermarket, and the country's biggest structure is the airport runway. Nauru is heavily dependent on Australia as its major source of financial support. Nauru used to prosper economically from phosphate mining, which is still extracted and exported. But the industry has taken a toll on the island, exhausting the harsh land and Making growing produce here extremely difficult. We are looking for it, but most of the times it's expensive in the shop. So maybe it's easy for them to eat meat and all those things apart from vegetables. Experts say the lack of fresh fruits and vegetables and heavy reliance on imported processed foods has contributed to one of the highest rates of obesity in the world. Nauru holds a couple of distinctions globally. It is the smallest republic on the planet and one of the least visited countries in the world. About 200 people come here annually, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is the fact that it sits out in the middle of the Pacific. The second, the country is surrounded by jagged coral reefs, discouraging cruise ships from including Nauru as a destination. Regardless, people here have a special relationship with the ocean that surrounds them. It's sort of like a medicine to us. It can, you know, body cramps or muscle ache. We can go and swim, and then it's we feel but better afterwards. It's a country where people are closely connected. Everyone knows everyone. We're family and extremely proud. It's just home of their tiny Pacific island nation. That was Greg Navarro introducing Nauru. Now, for more, we're joined by Liu Kuangyu. He is researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Kuangyu. Good to have you back on the show.、Uh, hello, this is Kuangyu. Now, Kuangyu, what do we know about the island nation of Nauru apart from our, what our reporter Greg Navarro has already talked about? Yes. Yes, first of all, geopolitically, Nauru is a very small island nation located between the Micronesian islands in the South Pacific. As you mentioned, it's very small. So, what、uh, means、uh, the small size? Small in size means Nauru's own politics, economy, and society very vulnerable to external forces. We know that Taiwan media describes Nauru as、uh, pursuing a diplomatic diplomatic realism. And frequent policy changes. This is due to the small size,、uh, the the the, uni- the uni- unitary、uh, economy structure, and high sensitivity for resources and environment, and high dependence on international、uh, cooperation. And secondly, narrow strategic location is very important.、Uh, although it's a very small country, we know that in the Second World War, the United States and Japan confronted. Competed for hegemony in, in this in the Pacific Ocean,、mm. and wars all took place around these these island countries. And today, the U.S. still hopes that Pacific island countries, including Nauru, will maintain diplomatic relations with Taiwan and become the flank to consolidate the central axis of the Sino-U.S. strategic confrontation line.、Mm-hmm. And for Australia as well, their、uh, Pacific strategies is also consistent. With that, of the United States and the Pacific Island countries are an important link to maintain Australia and and their、uh, allied forces. But, however, we should see that as a sovereign and independent country, Nauru enjoys a full legitimate right to determine its own development path, political perspective, and、mm. foreign policy. And this is correct choice should be、uh, respected by the international community and both sides of the strait.、Mm. Well, then, on that, Kuang Yu, in your opinion, what might have been the considerations of the Nauru 
on government to make the decision? Well, uh, Nehru's uh, political choice is based on a correct understanding of,、uh, I think, at least three historical trends.、Mm. Uh, first,、uh, based on the geopolitics and its own national interests, we see that Nehru is striving to get rid of the extraterritorial hegemonic inter- interference and influence of neighboring powers. And independently decides、uh, various policies based on its own its own long term development needs. This is in line with the approach taken by China and Pacific Island countries to create new strategic opportunities and to respond to common concerns for sustainable development through high quality consultation,、uh, joint contribution, sharing, and win win cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative,、uh, based on the four principles of、uh, mutual respect. And second,、uh, the trend of peace and stability across Taiwan Strait, Taiwan Strait, and in the region.、Mm. We know that Nehru broke off the so-called the, the diplomatic relations with Taiwan in the first stance, just after, right after the results of the two two elections in Taiwan were released, and、um, probably,、uh, very probably, because it saw the threat to the international order and regional stability、uh, posed by Lai Chingdei, who is a stubborn advocate of Taiwan independence. After it came to power,、uh, Nehru is opposing、uh, opposing it in impractical terms. The DPP's policy line of seeking independence and rejecting re- reunification, which has raised tensions in the Straits. And third is the, based on the common understanding of the international one China principle. I think Nehru's return to China's circle of friends, especially emphasizing emphasizing、uh, the, the, the the United Nations Resolution twenty seven fifty eight. Mm. This shows that this one China principle is universally recognized by the international community.、Mm. Well, then talking about that,、uh, really help us、yeah. understand how the one China principle was established and you know、mm-hmm. its ex- acceptance among the international community.、Uh, yes,、uh, through Nehru's、uh, choice and practice, we can once again get confirmation that the one China principle is universally recognized in the, in the international community and that. Peace and unification across the Taiwan Strait、uh, is the will of people and general trend.、Um, based on, we know that first, based on the Carroll Declaration, the Potsdam Proclamation, and the UN General Assembly's、uh, Resolution 2758, and supported by、uh, China's diplomatic relations with、uh, 182 diplomatic countries, and backed up by the international mechanism and legal interpretations of the United Nations at core. As the court of the practice, the pillars of the international、uh, one China principle are、mm-hmm. very clear and solid, and have become the important part of the post-war international order, the system of international law, and the international consensus.、Mm. So it should be noted that Nehru's return between the,、uh, the two sides of the Straits changes only the governmental recognition of who represents China, rather than the recognition of Taiwan is so-called as a country.、Mm. Well, Kuang Yu, what kind of、yeah. ramification do you think Nauru's decision will bring to you know、mm-hmm. decision makers in the Taiwan region? Well, actually,、uh, quite a lot.、Uh, we know that during Taiwan's terms office,、uh, the diplomatic relations have been severed ten times in a row,、mm-hmm. and the number of Taiwan's so-called allies allies accelerating to single digits, which is the inevitable result of DPP's policy line. Nauru's severe. Experience of、uh, diplomatic relations with Taiwan is not only a blow to Lai Chingdei, who has just seized power,、uh, but also a direct slap in the face of Taiwan's recent New Year speech, in which she claimed、uh, to have left left behind a policy legacy of Taiwan in the world, which is、uh, totally wrong.、Mm. And uh, mm. Mm. well, thank you. We appreciate your time and your insight. That was Liu Kuangyu, researcher at the Institute of Taiwan Studies. Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is World Today. We'll be right back after a short break. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing.
China has released its first policy document dedicated to strengthening the silver economy as part of efforts to address the challenges of an aging population. The guideline focuses on expanding and standardizing industrial clusters, prioritizing senior citizens' well-being through improved services, and creating nationwide industrial parks. According to statistics, the scale of China's silver economy stands at around seven trillion yuan, or one trillion U.S. dollars. That's about six percent of the country's total GDP. Now, for more, we're joined in the studio by my colleague Gaana. Anna, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, Anna, what do you make of the timing of the guideline? I mean, how urgent is it for the Chinese government to address the problem? I think the timing of the recently、uh, issued guideline on China's silver economy is definitely strategic and urgent, given the、uh, imminent def-、uh, demographic shift of China in recent years. Let me give you three set of numbers. According to data released by the Ministry of Civil Affairs, in China, nearly. Twenty percent of the population, or about two hundred and eighty million people, were aged sixty, and、uh, at the end of twenty twenty two, those sixty five or over were about fifteen percent of the population,、uh, or. Just two hundred and ten million, and the age group, the number of people aged sixty and above, is expected to exceed four、uh, hundred million in the next decade by around twenty thirty five, and will then account for over thirty percent of the population. So we can tell the challenges posed. <clears throat> Sorry, posed by the rapidly aging population, and is definitely pressing for the government and the society. So. As hundreds of millions of people reached retirement age in the next few years, the government is placing increasing focus on aging-related issues. You know, signaling the necessity for prompt and comprehensive actions to address the evolving needs of the aging population in China,、uh, to identify and mitigate the challenges on the horizon, to you know, create not only opportunities、uh, to better meet the needs of、uh, elder people. But also new drivers for the、uh, country's economy in the near future.、Mm, very timely responses、uh, from the Chinese government. And how does the recently issued guideline in China aim to enhance the branding of the silver economy? You know, the recent guideline from China is all about giving a prompt and comprehensive boost to the silver economy. Actually, before the release of the guideline,、uh, this year is the first State Council Executive meeting, a regular meeting of China. China's highest state administrative organ has profoundly focused on nurturing this silver economy and improving the well-being of the senior citizens. And the newly released guideline provides a clear depiction of the central government's future emphasis areas.、Uh, picture this: they are rolling out plans、uh, to make the industry or the silver market. Even bigger, more organized, and well-branded. It's not just about aging gracefully. It's、mm-hmm. about whole strategy and、uh, for the whole society in a long-term perspective.、Uh, they are also want to set up special industrial zones, like ten of them nationwide, just for the silver economy.、Uh, on the other hand, this will also, you know, help cultivate industrial leaders, entrepreneurship, while you know, stimulate senior citizen consumption. And they are also keen on improving food, healthcare, and even creating cool stuff for seniors.、Mm-hmm. The guideline specifically emphasized on nurturing new business models related to smart health and elderly care. For example,、uh, they might develop, you know, nursing、uh, and housekeeping robots for the elders,、mm-hmm. along with other、uh, biotechnologies that can help elevate illness of the.、Uh, Uh, age-related illness for the elders.、Mm-hmm. So you can see, it's not just a guideline; it's more of a roadmap to show that silver economy is a crucial part of China's economy, a China's future economically、mm-hmm. and socially.、Mm-hmm. A lot of details now,、uh, Anna. How will the well-being of senior citizens in the country protected by this di-、uh, directive? Let's break it down a little bit. The new measures in this directive are like a、uh, 
power up for the well-being of our senior citizens in China, right?、Mm-hmm. First, they are、uh, dialing up the quality of food and healthcare services. For example, they will expand home-based elderly care services and establishing embedded service facilities within the communities.、Uh, that allows seniors to receive excellent care without having to, you know, give up their houses or the companionship of their family members by going to nursing homes.、Uh, Is all about creating an environment where they can enjoy good care、uh, right at home.、Uh, it's like、uh, giving our senior a VIP treatment、mm-hmm. uh, instead of just depending on national pension system or social moral obligations.、Uh, they are. Driving or promoting the power of market development, you know, making investors and businesses、uh, willingly to ensure better and even VIP level care for elders. I think this is、uh, very crucial because it implies the potential for sustained and effective long-term. Benefits for senior citizens、uh, and also for the market and the society, and. Uh, uh, It doesn't just stop there. They are also, you know, speeding up the game with quick development of elderly care institutions and injecting innovations into the areas,、mm-hmm. uh, like I mentioned earlier, the robot nurse, etc. It's not just a guideline. I think it's more about a game changer for making sure that our seniors are living their best lives in the near future, not forgotten、uh, as China marches into the high quality development.、Mm, right. The government clearly is involving more enterprises and individuals in the cause.、Uh, we have one more minute,、uh, Anna. But、uh, you know, why does the silver economy is emerging as a pressing priority for China's economy?、Uh, as you pointed out in the anchor part, the scale of China's silver Economy standing around one trillion US dollar. That's about six percent of country's total GDP, and the anticipated growth of the silver economy is twenty eight percent of total consumption and nine point six percent of GDP by twenty thirty five within a decade. And、uh, the growth of China's older demographic and、uh, China's growing middle class is creating increasing demand for products and services related to the、uh, aging, and that. That implies that、um, this kind of assistance will need more uh, special uh, attention from the government and the market,、mm. and that shows the、uh, great demand from the society.、Mm. Thank you. That's my colleague Guana on China's silver economy. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. For more discussions, find us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.